You're listening to Radio Primavera Sound, proudly presented by Cupra. Hello and welcome to Radio Primavera Sound, welcome to Line Noise, and very much welcome to Sean Renauda. How are you doing? I'm alive. That's the, that's the best I can say after being on tour for a week. This tour is is amazing, right? I've got the well. We should sorry. We should say you're on tour because you've uh, just published a book, First Floor Volume One, uh, coming out on Velocity Press. Congratulations! Thank you very much. Uh, that's your first your first book. Yes, it's my first book. It wasn't even I didn't have a plan to make a book. It was actually Velocity Press's idea. They wrote me two years ago just kind of an exploratory email being like, hey, if you ever have any book ideas, like, let us know. And I was like, I don't have any ideas. Thank you. <laughs> and then they wrote me again around Christmas time and said, hey, what do you think about taking this newsletter, First Floor That You Write, where, you know, anyone who's listening who hasn't heard it, I usually write like essays and articles and stuff like that. And they're like, what do you think about making a collection into a book? And I thought that sounded interesting. So we kind of... uh really quickly put it together and in the span of like four or five months got it out and yeah now i'm on tour promoting it <laughs> this tour is amazing we were just talking about this uh off mic and and you play london bristol glasgow manchester amsterdam berlin barcelona tonight fourth july uh and then an extra date in milan at the demand the absolute demand of lorenzo senni it's true it's weird how many people read first floor like when I started it, it was the first one I, I checked. I went back and looked and it went out to 89 people. And now it has like this, I don't want to like make it out to be this, you know, a mammoth of uh, media or anything, but it has a sizable following all over the world, including many artists. And when I first announced the tour, Lorenzo Senni wrote me and he was like, oh, are you coming to Milan? And I was like, um, I don't have any plans to come to Milan, you know. Uh, I write in English and, you know, I love Italy, but I don't think I have a huge fan base. He's like, oh, I would love to, I would love to have you come. And he worked with some friends there and set it up. Really, We literally announced it on Monday. The event is on Wednesday. And uh, I'm looking forward to it. I'm also looking forward to eating some Italian food. I, I think you're being very modest that because um, it, it definitely, first of all, has um, a, a big, uh, a big following. Uh, and it's sort of... Uh, I want to use the phrase opinion leader, but without sounding like a total wanker. Can I use thought there, leader? Thought leader. That's is that, is that, that's worse. I think. Yeah, that's worse. But you know what I mean. Like, is there a good way of putting that? I kind of think of myself. I mean, music journalist is a very generic term to use and means a lot of things. But I kind of function in the same way that like a newspaper columnist works, where it is very rooted in opinion and my perspective as someone who's been involved in electronic music for more than 20 years now, both as a journalist and in other roles as well. And I don't know, it's just kind of a space where I can write about things without having to worry about chasing clicks or upsetting, you know, brand sponsors. Like it's just a completely independent newsletter. And I guess that kind of gives me the freedom to like tackle sort of thorny topics that a lot of the more traditional media outlets usually steer away from. I want to get into that, but firstly, so uh, tell us a bit about yourself. For anyone that doesn't know, um, you started off. Well, no, you started in radio, right? Yes. Or, yeah. So I started in radio. Gosh, when I was nineteen or twenty years old in San Francisco, and also in Berkeley while I was a college student, and I worked in radio for a good almost a decade, pretty much. And that was both like commercial radio, like I worked at an alternative rock radio station. Um, and then I also worked in non-commercial radio at the university station in Berkeley. And then I sort of transitioned into doing other things, running a few different record labels, DJing a lot, throwing parties. And somewhere along the line, I became a music journalist, like writing about music. And I worked at Accelerator Magazine for a long time. I eventually became the editor-in-chief there. Then I worked at Red Bull Music Academy for a number of years. And when that ended, that's when I started First Floor. You were, because um, Accelerator was really, really big. It's, it's one of those um, magazines that 
I'd kind of see on on the shelves like we got kind of ex, uh, import copies like coming into the UK, and it, it was like uh, I'm gonna say, and feel free to correct me, probably the US's biggest dance music magazine. Was there anything else? I mean, Specialist. I mean, there was a few like there was Herb magazine as well, but I think Accelerator was probably the biggest. And it was certainly the most recognized outside of the U.S. Like, I run into people from the U.K. and Europe who are, like, fondly remember Accelerator magazine. Um, and it's funny, though, because it was... I started working there in 2008, I believe. And we had, like, 15 people in two different offices, which now sounds like a lot. But at the time, for an internationally distributed print magazine, that was actually, like, a skeleton crew... Um, but we made it work, and uh, yeah, it was a fun. It was a fun operation. Although we had to cancel the print magazine within like two years of me starting, and we went online only. Like I've kind of been a music journalist during a very tumultuous time <laughs> for music journalism. Like I saw the whole transition from print to online, and now I've seen the sort of disintegration of the idea that online media is sustainable through clicks and ads, and. Yeah, it's weird. I mean, I should have gotten out a long time ago, but uh, here I am still persisting. I don't know if it's the same um, with you as, it, as it's been for me, is that when I sort of started in music journalism in about 2005, and people are always like, oh yeah, just like three years ago. Three years ago, we had all the money, and three years ago, we were flying out to New York, and I was like, oh, for God's sake. <laughs> yeah, th there's not been a lot of perks during my time. In, I mean, the main perks is free music, free guest list to shows, and then the occasional press trip to go to a festival that you're, you know, obligated to review. And I don't want to like make it out like that's not nothing. I've enjoyed all no, of, no, no, I've no, enjoyed no. all of those things, but the golden era of being flown out to Los Angeles to go hang out with an artist for a week and then write a 3000 word profile, that I it's not something I've experienced <laughs> in my time um so yeah, but it's fine. Like I, I've made it work. I, I think it's quite interesting your time when you were with Accelerator, for example, because again, this is coming from an outsider's perspective. But as far as I saw, there was you know the big um, electronic music boom in. I mean, obviously, dance music's from the US. Let's you know, let's you know, it, it's it's an American invention. Chicago, Detroit, New York, etc. Let's not you know, let's let's not forget that. But like. Um, in, in terms of like more mainstream media, there was like the sort of 90s, late 90s boom when you had like Chemical Brothers and, and Astral Works label and all that, that kind of thing. And then it seemed again, and I'm speaking from the outside, that it, was, it kind of went a bit quiet. And that was like when you were at Accelerator, right? Was it? Yeah. I mean, the guy who started Accelerator, his name was Andrew Smith, and he was literally a raver during the 90s, like involved in the American rave scene, which was a basically underground phenomenon. And yeah, during the late 90s, there was this push where it was, they called it Electronica, and it was Chemical Brothers, Fatboy Slim, Daft Punk. And it's like, hey, it's this quote-unquote new thing <laughs> that they were trying to sell to mostly like alternative rock kids and, you know, angry suburbanites in the US. <laughs> and it worked for a couple of years, and then new metal came along and Electronica got pushed aside. So... But my experience of electronic music was almost entirely like as an underground phenomenon. And I came into it as a wholly independent music culture, a community that existed outside of the mainstream and actually positioned itself that way. Like part of the appeal was it was like this sort of secret society that was set against what was happening on Top 40 and the radio and MTV and stuff like that. So when I got the job at Accelerator, it felt like, oh, this is cool. It was a chance to write about music that really wasn't being covered in the press and even in the independent music press that much in the U.S. There was only a few small outlets that pay attention to this stuff. Because I'm sort of amazed, sorry, this is slightly going off, off, off piece, but I'm sort of amazed even now that um, some of the people that I consider like the most fundamental names in like electronic music, I mean... I know people like Kevin Saunderson and, and and people like that. You know that even even now, even like you know post, um, well even now you know post EDM and kind of when when it does seem to be getting quite big. That you know someone like Kevin Saunderson is doesn't kind of get the reverence he deserves. Maybe. I mean, I think 
I mean, there's such a long history of, I mean, no offense, but the UK loves to take American music. Yeah. Oh, no, it's not, not offense at all. It's, it's a- yeah, and then repackage it and then sort of claim it for itself. And then, you know, lots of times the history of where it came from, especially when it's coming from, you know, black uh, and brown communities in the US that aren't tied into the international music industry, um, they kind of get pushed aside or just not the recognition. And I mean, some of that is, I don't think it was malicious necessarily on the UK's part. I mean, I'm sure there were some guys that were like, you know, I mean, there's definitely tons of stories about people not getting their royalties and signing sort of shady deals and, you know, UK labels selling millions of copies uh, and getting rich while the artists are back home in Detroit not making money. But I think for the most part, it wasn't necessarily malicious. It was just people were really excited about this music. They wanted to throw events and then DJs in the UK started picking it up. It was a lot easier to, you know, build something locally, build local scenes, throw local events. And that combined with the sort of acid house panic in the UK press, like fueled this youth movement in the UK. I mean, I wasn't there, but maybe you could tell me, but um, yeah, it just kind of blew up. And it's funny, even in the US, even today, electronic music is still largely seen as this like European phenomenon. And uh, I interviewed these two guys, Moma Reddy and Ace Moma, or, no, Ace Mo and Moma Reddy for Beatport a couple of years ago. And I was talking to them and they were saying that, you know, they didn't discover that house music and techno were created in black communities until like 2017. <laughs> and they had grown up in the U.S. their whole lives And when they found out about this history that they hadn't been told by the media, they were really upset and legitimately so because they were like, this is something that came out of our community and nobody told us. So we always just thought that this was like music for white people and music from Europe. So, I mean, there's been a failure by the music press and just the music industry in general to kind of recognize the, the whole story. And I mean... Uh, I mean, we could do a whole hour just on this topic, to be honest. But that's a good way of summing it up. Yeah, no, totally, totally. Um, first of all, I mean, that was originally your show for Red Bull Music Academy, right? Yeah, it was a radio show for a few years. And the idea was basically every week I would go on and only play tracks that had come out the week prior. So it was kind of just a way for people to check in and uh, kind of catch up with all the latest at least all the latest new music that I thought was good in the electronic sphere. And I interviewed a lot of artists as well, usually who had records coming out that same week. Um, and you were there for many years and, and, and until they, they, I guess they decided to switch their funding efforts or, or I don't know, kind of. Yeah, I mean, it's a bit complicated, but basically RBMA, Red Bull Music Academy, was this project that was overseen by a separate creative agency that existed outside of Red Bull. And for some reason, Red Bull in 1999 decided to give them money to set up the academy and run this project. And they kept funding it for like 20 years, which is very odd in the world of, you know, branded music initiatives. Usually they last like three months, six months, a year, maybe two. But this is sort of just an open-ended project where this agency was just given a ton of latitude to get weird, embrace, uh, you know, artists and cultures that existed way outside the mainstream, way outside of, you know, the primary music markets in North America and Europe as well. Dig into like, you know, a lot of history. Um, Yeah, it was a really cool initiative. Like it was one of the best professional experiences that I've had. But yeah, in 2019, Red Bull and this agency, I don't know. I mean, I wasn't involved in the decision, but a decision was made to stop funding the project and it all came to a close within like a few months um, and kind of left a big gaping hole in uh, the music industry and especially the media landscape that I think still hasn't been filled. I think it's interesting because a lot of the times when I'm researching something and, you know, um, to give a recent example, I was researching something on Masters at Work and one of the biggest, most in-depth interviews I found was like a, you know, a Red Bull interview. It was like this sort of hour-long, kind of really serious. And there was like a really famous Moody Man interview, which is, I think, almost certainly the longest interview he's ever given. And there was like a big Pepe Braddock interview. He never does interviews. Like there was, there was some really, really 
really good things there. And for a while, there was th- they were even going to disappear from the internet, but they're back now, I think. That was kind of a, a Twitter panic, like a very typical uh. <laughs> Twitter panic. What happened, I mean, I don't work there anymore, but, uh, you know, I heard through the, the ex-RBMA grapevine. Basically, someone at Red Bull, when RBMA ended, they made an agreement that the whole archive of all the lectures and all the articles that were written for the, the editorial arm would stay up online forever. But I guess someone at Red Bull, like, forgot to pay the web registration for redbullmusicacademy.com. <laughs> so it went down for, like, a day or less than a day. But in that time, social media and Twitter especially blew up and was like, this is what happens when a brand is involved. You can't trust uh, that the archive <clears throat> will stay on forever and everyone is flipping out. And then someone paid the bill and it went back online like a day later. And of course, no one acknowledged that there was a mistake or that everything was fine. I mean, that said, could it just go down randomly someday if Red Bull decides we don't want to pay this server bill anymore? Possibly. And that's like really scary. I mean, that's a scary thing about digital media in general, where there's tons of publications that have gone out of business and their entire archive just disappears overnight. It's happened to me where things I've written are just no longer available. Yeah. So 2019, when that ends, most people would probably, I don't know, start freelancing. But you decide to go out on your own to launch a newsletter, which like 2019, I remember newsletters weren't, I mean, they were obviously a thing they existed people knew about them but it wasn't i think now it's more of a accepted route if you know what i mean like what 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 was the thinking there i had a couple of friends who had kind of started talking about newsletters one was todd burns who was a former editor of red bull of well he was the editor of the red bull music academy daily and then also before that had been the editor in chief at ra and he had started a newsletter just not even focused on electronic music. And I was just like, oh, this is interesting. And it's kind of a throwback to earlier times of, you know, a time of message boards and mailing lists and things like that. But more than anything, I just started it because I didn't know what I wanted to do next in terms of a job. When RBMA ended, I didn't necessarily want to go and be the editor of another publication. I had done that before. There aren't that many electronic music publications (laughs) out there anyways. But I was like... I'm an experienced person. People know my name. Someone is going to hire me. I'm just going to wait. But in the meantime, I should keep my name circulating, at least in industry circles. So a newsletter seemed like something manageable that I could do. And I just started it and what you know, just kept writing and kept doing it every week. But then within a few months, like it grew from that initial 89 people that got the first one to like hundreds and then thousands. And then I saw people posting my articles like on Twitter and it's starting like, you know, arguments on social media for better and for worse. But it just became a thing people were talking about. And then six months into it, the pandemic hit and it was like, oh, no one's going to hire me for a job now. (laughs) I guess I'd better keep doing the newsletter. And also at the same time, everyone had tons of time to read. And there was definitely a big spike during the pandemic of people reading the newsletter and getting excited about it. And it's just gone from there. Now, three and a half years later, it's something resembling a full-time job for me. One of the things I like about it, and one of the things I also think is must be very difficult, is having to write one opinion piece every week. Because for me, there are some weeks where I care about a lot of things. And there are some weeks like, I'm, just like, <laughs> I'm good. <laughs> is, it, is it hard? It is hard. And I wish I could tell you that I had some master plan or some editorial calendar that is planned out months in advance. There's another newsletter I like called Penny Fractions, which is really focused on like music industry machinations and uh, financial deals made to buy songwriters catalogs and streaming companies. Anyways, he actually publishes his editorial calendar for his readers like up to six months to a year in advance that you can check it out. And so it's like, oh, I know in two months he's going to write an article about whatever topic. I literally take it week to week. And there's, you know, the long form pieces come out on Tuesdays and there's definitely many instances where it's Monday and I'm like, oh, I need to write something. So the good side of that is it gives the newsletter a certain sort of like 
temporality. I don't know if that's the right word, but it's like, it, it's current. Like, and lots of times I'm writing in sort of response to things that have happened recently or that I've seen online or yeah, just an email I received or an article that I read. And I think that it gives me an ability to sort of tap into what people are talking about. I've been told so many times, like on this tour during the past week, where people say like, what I really like about First Floor is that you put things into words that I've been thinking about, but just didn't know how to express or haven't seen anyone else talking about. So as much as I hate to use words like zeitgeist or something like that, I mean, I do think I have sort of an ability to tap into like what people are thinking and a willingness to talk about it, even if it you know might make certain folks uncomfortable. I think you can definitely use the word zeitgeist. And I think that's sort of... Um it's an advantage of the format, but it's also an advantage of the way in which you do it. I think so, you know, you can, it's definitely, it always feels relevant. And that, that seems like a, a, a half comp, but it's not. It's like, that's a, that's a very difficult thing to do. Well, thank you. Um, you often write about uh, electronic music journalism. In fact, we were laughing recently, you were described <laughs> as the scourge of the music press. Um, and you, you're pretty uh, hard on electronic music journalism, the, 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 the standards. Why? Because, you know, it's funny. Like when I started the newsletter, I felt like I did a lot more pieces that were sort of defending what was going on in music journalism because there is like a pretty profound misunderstanding of the difficulties of being a music journalist. I think the average punter just thinks that we're all just like, you know, getting free stuff and sitting around listening to people's <laughs> records and cackling about how bad they are and like thinking of the best ways to tear artists down. I mean, music journalists are not terribly popular, even within music circles lots <laughs> of times. But so I used to write a lot about like, here are some of the structural difficulties that journalists face that you should understand, you know, fewer resources, ton, there's way more releases than we could possibly cover. It's a hard job and things aren't getting more difficult. But I don't know, in the, in the post-pandemic sort of media landscape, it just feels like things have disintegrated to such degree through these systemic causes. I want to make clear that like, I think most music journalists mean well and are in it for the right reasons and want to do a good job. But I think the media landscape has disintegrated to such a degree where it's almost impossible to do a good job. And a lot of media outlets have had to turn to, let's say, less than ideal business practices to keep the lights on. And I think you can raise the question of, like, is music journalism even the main economic function of many of these outlets nowadays for, for a variety of reasons, whether they're chasing brand partnerships or selling tickets or these kinds of things. Um, and this is another thing that a lot of like, you know, punters and readers don't realize of like, you know, oh, okay, Resident Advisor publishes news and, and interviews and stuff like that, but they're also selling tickets and they're also chasing, you know, very lucrative brand partnerships. And how does that affect their editorial? And I just kind of want to shine a light on what's going on in hopes of increasing understanding and then maybe pressuring them to reconsider and do better? I mean, Resident Advisor, uh, for example, is, is an interesting example because you, ha you have written about it a few times and you were on a panel uh, at IMS Ibiza with um, someone from Resident Advisor, I can't remember who, but I, how did that turn out? I'm guessing they weren't particularly pleased. No, that was... It was a challenging panel, I will say. Uh, it was me, someone from Resident Advisor, someone from Mixmag, someone from Crack, and someone from Beatport. And it was tough because I was talking about a lot of these, you know, sort of big picture issues with music journalism. You know, the brand uh, partnership stuff and how that affects the editorial, uh, money that some of these outlets had gotten from the government, you know, huge grants during the pandemic. Yeah. Um, just also basic things like lack of staffing, lack of training, lots of turnover, uh, sort of loss of institutional knowledge as, you know, more veteran journalists leave the field. And like 
the people I was on the panel with, none of that is their fault. Yeah, yeah. But they were kind of in the position of having to defend their workplaces while I'm being like, well, you know, I know you guys are trying, but the places you work for are doing a bad job. <laughs> and things definitely got a bit testy at times. Uh, but I've heard from many people that were in the audience that they enjoyed the conversation and, you know, appreciated that it focused on issues that don't get discussed that often. I think the other important thing to say is that every week you highlight at least one and often more pieces of electronic music journalism that you really like. Yes, Which yes. Which I think people don't kind of <laughs> pick up so much on, you know. Yeah, like I genuinely like electronic music, obviously, but also electronic music journalism. And there are good writers out there and there is good journalism happening. It's just harder and harder to find and it's not a matter of just going to the one trusted source anymore. I mean, people don't even really consume media that mm. way. But when people ask me like, oh, well, where should I go to like get the good stuff? Like, And what I often tell them is for a good media diet, the best way is to find writers you like and follow them because most journalists are contributing to multiple outlets. And if you find the good writers, that can make you feel more satisfied than just looking at you know, whatever Resident Advisor or MixMag or anyone is publishing, because that quality tends to vary quite a lot. So one thing that, that um, I find, I, th I think you mentioned briefly uh, that, um, you, d you know, obviously as a music journalist, you don't, I think people think you're going to be hanging out with artists all the time, you know, backstage, and you're really, you're really genuinely not, and arguably you probably shouldn't be either. Um, but you have got a load of artists to basically interview you i mean like uh, we're, we're talking big names like Patton, bruce uh matrix man um this very night john talibut who's not you know an artist who does a lot of anything in the media and you've got them to interview you <laughs> but, i mean they're, they're moderating but they're basically interviewing you like yes. how 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 on earth did you do that i mean some of it is just through being involved in this a long time and Outside of being a music journalist, you know, I have experience like as a event promoter and running labels and stuff like that. So, you know, there's examples of, you know, Matrix Man is someone I knew from when we both lived in San Francisco. Patton is someone I interviewed in the newsletter previously. And uh, John Talibot lives here in Barcelona. We've been friends for a long time. So I don't want to give the impression that I'm hanging out with artists all the time because <laughs> I'm definitely not. But it's just if you're in it long enough, you start to make relationships. And then I also, you know, someone like Lorenzo Senni, I've had one in-person conversation with him and it was during uh, Sonar this year for, I don't know, two minutes in a line. But a lot of artists read, seem to read the newsletter. And I think that they appreciate the fact that there's an outlet that's willing to, you know, do things outside of the regular promo cycle and sort of address because I also write about the systemic issues that are they're facing as well. Like, you know, just a couple of weeks ago, I wrote about how artists are increasingly expected to come up with like dazzling festival-ready live shows, um, even if they're just up and coming and new. And uh, Lorenzo Senni actually wrote me immediately afterward and was like, this is something I've been talking about for years. So I think that's why they're willing to do it. Um, but yes, I don't want to give the impression that like, I'm in some like VIP room all the time because that's definitely not my life. I write first floor at home in my apartment in Barcelona and uh, I'm not consulting artists about what I should and should, should not be saying. How good are artists at doing this? I'm, I'm absolutely fascinated by this because I think um, there is a skill in, in moderating a panel. There is a skill in, in asking questions. Um, and I'm, I mean, I'm not going to specifics because that would be very rude but like how good are artists generally at, at doing this D does is there a moment when they realize that oh no you actually do need to sort of you know <laughs> i mean i would say it varies i did try to ask people that either i had a relation some kind of relationship with or that i knew had spoken about some of these issues before and luckily i'm very used to public speaking and you know, being the interviewer and I did radio for a long time. So I can sort of carry <laughs> the conversation if needed. The one thing I found that was really interesting and really heartening is uh, 
you know, people might think that the artists would just show up and, you know, be lazy about it. But all of these people really prepared. Like a lot of them showed up with like multiple pages of notes. If anything, they over-prepared <laughs> and then weren't necessarily prepared to sort of um, break from the script right. and just have a conversation, which I think is the hardest part about interviewing is it's not like I have 20 questions and I'm going to go through them in order. You have to be able to just sort of have an outline in your head and jump around. But no, so far it's been it's been good. They've all been really good conversations and Besides, like, a few people definitely had some visible nerves, but uh, the conversations have been a lot of fun for, for me to have as well. I think it's crazy they'd have, you know, nerves. They're kind of used to DJing to <laughs> a thousand people, which would make me incredibly nervous. And yeah. yeah, and some of them are freaking out, like, in front of a room of, like, 30, 30 people to talk about a newsletter and my book. <laughs> so uh, it just goes to show that, you know, it takes, uh, it takes all kinds. Everyone has, the, has their space in electronic music. I, I should just say, um, in case that came across badly, like um, artists, are, I mean, are brilliant and, you know, doing what they do. And I'm just, like, they're incredible at making music. And there's no particular reason why they should be good at kind of asking questions. It's just us kind of quite interested to know, like, you know. Yeah, I guess it was something of a risk on my part. But when I was putting the tour together, I really thought about it. I was like, well, I could have journalists interview me or other writers interview me, but it just felt like the conversation would be, I don't know, it just felt, not that it wouldn't be fun. I mean, you and I are having a nice conversation <laughs> right now, but uh, I just thought it would be interesting to sort of change up the dynamic a bit and sort of flip the usual relationship and see what artists had to ask me about. And yeah, like I said, much of my surprise, they really prepared. A lot of them had clearly read the book and uh, were citing specific uh, passages in Manchester. John Howes, who runs the Congburn label, he had some very specific questions where he was like, in this essay, you said this. All right, let's talk about this essay. And it was really, uh, it got really granular at times, but it was good. It was good to see that. Um. So the book, um, when it, uh, Velocity Press got in touch and suggested doing um, doing a book, uh, how did you start putting it together? Was it a case of like looking at your favorite essays or the ones you thought were most um, relevant still or the ones, I don't know, that, that had created most attention? I mean, there's 30-something essays in the book. So... I kind of just went through the archive and picked out the ones that one had made the most impact when they came out and two that I felt resonated the most with me, especially now, like afterwards. And then also just a few that I really liked personally that weren't necessarily the most popular ones. And then I grouped them basically into four different sections in the book. So there's one section about sort of cultural norms and how they're shifting in electronic music. There's one section specifically about the music industry, things like streaming and other sort of business stuff and how it does and often doesn't work properly. There's a whole section on music journalism. And then the book ends with a kind of a collection of pieces that are more sort of historical or put things through a more historical lens. And yeah, that's the whole book. And you've updated them all. Yes. So I went through and, you know, trimmed some of the things that, didn't make sense because they were very specific to the week that it dropped. Uh, but the main bones of it is just what was already published in the, in the newsletter. But I did create like a new intro for every single article. And then there's a intro to the book and an outro to the book. And I also got Martin, who is a Dutch artist, lives in America, runs the 3024 label. Uh, he wrote a nice, um, what is it called? Forward to the book. So it's probably about 90% stuff that was already published, but there is that new material. And it was interesting to like add these sort of new intros and like reflect back on things that I wrote two or three years ago, some of which I've changed my opinion about. And I even admit that like, oh, when I wrote this, I was feeling X way. But now two years later, I feel slightly differently and here's why. So it's not... It's not necessarily an attempt to like make myself look good and only put all the cases where I turned out to be right. Give us an example of that, something where you went back and kind of... Streaming is a really good example. I mean, I've written more articles and essays about Spotify than 
is advisable. <laughs> but, you know, it's been a big topic in the music industry. And in the, yeah, in the first year of the newsletter, I wrote, there's one piece that's literally titled, Take your, Pull Your Music Off Spotify. And it was a real, like, let's tear this all down. Streaming yeah. is bad. People need to know that streaming has a negative effect. And here's why getting into the nitty gritty. And at the time, you know, that conversation was still relatively new. And, you know, there was people, you know, like Liz Pelly and Matt Dryhurst who had already been talking about it. But I felt like in specific electronic music space, there wasn't a lot of people commenting on it. But as time has gone by, I mean, Spotify and streaming in general, it's gone through some pretty terrible press. Like everyone <laughs> knows, like even like a suburban grandmother probably has heard that Spotify is having a a negative effect on artists and it pays a fraction of a penny. And I think when everyone knows that this is the reality, yet the customer base for Spotify and for streaming is bigger than ever. It's literally larger than it's ever been. It's, you know, it's not going anywhere. It doesn't feel like, you know, no matter how many times people dunk on the CEO, Daniel Ek on Twitter and make fun of him because he's a nerd, <laughs> like, or complain about their deal with Joe Rogan or whatever. It may be like, it doesn't seem like Spotify is going to collapse. So if it's here, how can we reckon with it? So I wrote, uh, I've written some subsequent pieces, including one from just a few months ago. That was like, if it's here, artists sort of kind of need to make peace with it and figure out, do they want to participate or not? Uh, it's not, you know, we're never going to get to a point where everyone's pulling their music off Spotify, but some people could. And if we do want to reform it, maybe we should look at things like, you know, advocating for government regulation or, and going that way instead of like hoping that shame is going to work. It doesn't seem like shame is going to work, especially as the money keeps rolling. And so that's an example where I guess I've like, I don't want to say I've mellowed a bit. Like I'm still like very down on, on streaming and it's, it's impacts, but, uh, I no longer have the illusion that we're going to fix it. What was it like generally going back to your work? It was fine, actually. Um, yeah, I don't feel like, I mean, yeah, I didn't really have feel uncomfortable going through it. It was kind of nice. The one thing that I really noticed is that in the first year of the newsletter, I was way more strident. And I think it was because there, there's less people reading and I hadn't gotten as much feedback and, you know, there was just this idea of like, oh, I'm just writing for myself and like a small handful of people who happen to be reading. And after having several instances of, you know, getting battered around on social media occasionally when, you know, a piece touches a particular nerve or even just getting more feedback, you know, every week I get emails from people and some of them are like incredibly thoughtful. Sometimes people send me like essay length emails being like, here's my thoughts on what you wrote about and it does make me think, and it's kind of compelled me to take sort of a, I don't know, a more measured approach and do a lot more of like, hey, let's consider all sides of this. Sometimes people criticize me because like, I'm not big on like, especially nowadays, like here's the problem and here's my solution. Like a lot of the, like, the idea that I'm going to crack the problem in the course of one essay is not really feasible, especially for huge systemic problems. And so, if, frankly, if you fix the problem of streaming, you would not be giving up. <laughs> yeah. So I will lots of times, you know, sort of just consider both sides and just say like, I don't know how this problem can be fixed, but it's a problem and we should acknowledge that. And that doesn't satisfy everyone, but I think it's a more rational way to approach it um, instead of, you know, sort of taking the usual social media route of like everything's black and white, right and wrong. Like nothing is, things really are complicated. And uh, sometimes just fostering conversation is a good first step towards making them better. Well, I wanted to ask about this because um, the, the kind of argument, but in a good way you're having, debate is, is a better way to put it, is, I think is a very healthy thing. Um, but it's becoming because people are sending you emails. Um, and, you know, Twitter, and I know something you've written about was traditionally like a place, you know, that people go to talk about various issues, but now Twitter's like a, you know, on fire, basically. <laughs> um, what do you, I mean, like, for a start, where, 
where is the space for debate? Because I mean, like, obviously, in first floor, there's 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 definitely a space for debate. But then people are responding to you one on one, and it's like, well, no one else is going to read that if you see what I mean. No, I understand. Uh, for a long time, I felt like Twitter was the place where people would debate this stuff. Granted, like, I kind of learned my lesson and usually wouldn't wade into <laughs> said debate. Like, I would kind of, you know, I tried it a few times and usually regretted it. But the way I thought about it is, like, I'm writing my opinion or my perspective, and I put it out there, and then if people feel differently, they're free to comment on it and joust online. And, you know, sometimes those conversations would really <laughs> catch on fire um, for good and, for good and bad. Now, I don't know. I mean, it's tough. Like with Twitter just sort of disintegrating, it feels increasingly like a kind of ghost town um, unless you're like an alt-right weirdo. Um, so, but it, yeah, I don't know where the space for a debate is. Ideally, I would love to see more music journalists writing about this kind of stuff. But it really feels like within traditional media outlets, there's not a lot of appetite to write about this stuff Maybe because like writing about it properly takes a lot of time and resources, certainly a lot more than just like regurgitating a press release um, and making a, you know, quote unquote news story or emailing an artist a list of questions and then printing the answers. And, you know, some of that lack of quality isn't, again, it's not necessarily malicious on these outlets part. It's just the time and resources they have, you know, so you end up with a sort of a lot of cheap content. Um but yeah, I would love to see more writers. I mean, that would be my ideal way of debate. You know, in the same way you see like, you know, columnists in New York Times or The Guardian sort of like debating issues in that yeah. way. I mean, maybe that's a bit elitist and academic of me, but it seems better than slinging mud at each other on social media. I mean, does how do you feel generally about like, because sometimes when I see sort of, you know, mud slinging on Twitter, I just despair for music lovers, humanity, general, everyone. But I mean, it sounds like you've been getting a lot of more considered um, response. Ha has How does it make you feel, that, that the response you've got? Really good, actually. One nice thing about the newsletter is that, unlike my prior work, it's very much me. Like, it's the first time that I've used intentionally like the first person and say I mm. in my work a lot because I grew up with this sort of tradition of like you're the journalist you're not the story don't use I you're you know people aren't reading to read about you they're reading about what you, and I really enforced that even as an editor but once I started first floor I was like this is obviously a one-person operation I'm not going to pretend that I'm you know that I'm this impartial figure like I'm me I have my perspective and stuff um but a lot of people have written me over the years, like people that, that I've known for years, that have read my work for years and have said, this sounds more like you. I can hear your voice in when I'm reading the work. And the fact that people are responding generally positively to it and that it's grown to the level that it has, like it does make me feel good. And it makes me feel like, oh, maybe I know what I'm talking about. Like this seems to be resonating with people. And even when it doesn't, resonate with people. I mean, I think definitely there's part of the appeal is that it's just an opinion. I think a lot of content in electronic music media and music media in general feels kind of anodyne where it's just like passing along whatever marketing information is coming from the artist. And the fact that I'm not that interested in that stuff and I'm just like, hey, here's this thing we're all thinking and no one's talking about. Um, even if you don't agree with me, at least it's a hu it feels like a human being expressing an opinion and then you as a human being can can respond negatively to that. And I get emails on that way too of people being like, I get what you're saying, but I think you're wrong. And sometimes they even say it not as nicely as that as well. But um, I get responses of all kinds and it's nice to think that I'm generating thought and discussion and conversation to some degree. So um, the book is subtitled Reflections on Electronic Music Culture. It's a big question. But what do you think the book tells us about electronic music? I think the main takeaway is that electronic music in the past few years has been in a really profound 
transformative moment. I mean, I think you can argue that the whole world has been through kind of a transformative moment with the pandemic. Although there's not a ton of like pandemic material in the book. Like if anyone's thinking there's going to be a lot of like essays about plague graves or vaccines or stuff, like I didn't really put that kind of stuff in. But the interesting thing about the past few years is like dance music has always been really uh, sort of a transient space. Like a lot of people get into electronic music and they have their sort of clubbing phase for a few years and then drop out. Like, yeah. I feel like compared to other genres, you know, it's one of the few genres where every three years, 50% of the fan base is different. And so that's always been going on. But because of the pandemic, we have this real before and after moment. Like there was a pause in the culture. And I think that pause pushed a lot of elders. I mean, by elders, I mean people like, let's say over 35 <laughs> Um, Youngers, as I call them. (laughs) Um, Sort of into early retirement. Like, you know, a lot of people stopped going out because of the pandemic and never went back to the club. And in the meantime, a bunch of new people discovered the music. But instead of discovering it by going to the club when they were 18 or 21 or wherever, they discovered it because they saw it on TikTok or they watched Boiler Room or they watched live streams. And they got this sort of like idea of the culture that wasn't based on like the normal real world experience. And now we're seeing this sort of clash where like there's fewer elders to show people the right way to do it. And there's all these new people who are sort of like pantomiming a culture that they learned about on social media and YouTube. And it's created a lot of tension and just weirdness in the club. One thing that I worry about sometimes, which sort of is is related to that, is I I write uh, quite a lot about electronic music, um, and I don't go out that much. You know, I've got two two kids. I got a bit more now, but like, and I do worry sometimes if it's like I'm missing that part of it. If if there's like tunes that totally pass me by, or that I just literally don't understand because I haven't heard them, you know. Um, in in a, in a big club, basically. Like, what, what do you what do you think? I think you go out more than me. I I don't know. I don't want to, but I you don't get that much. Uh, no, I mean, I would go. I would like to go out more, but I mean, not to cast aspersions, but like, I don't love the clubs here in Barcelona. It feels like a lot of the clubs here are very geared towards sort of large scale clubbing experiences. And even when DJs that I like come to town, it's like do I want to see this person with 1,500 other people, many of whom are just there because it's Saturday? Um, so, but yes, I don't go out as much as I used to, for sure. But I think with my writing, what I've tried to do is not necessarily be like, hey, here's what all the kids are doing. Like, I'm very much, in the book, there's a lot of instances of me, like, actively pointing out that I'm, you know, in my 40s, that I'm an aging raver, <laughs> But so I'm not trying to be that. But at the same time, I also don't want to be the like angry old guy who's like the kids are doing it wrong. I think the kids are doing it in the way that makes sense to them. Some of that way seems very odd to me. A lot of it I don't necessarily like, but I am interested in the motivations of like, you know, people are playing hard style remixes of Britney Spears in quote unquote underground club spaces now why? Like, why do they think that that is subversive? Like, why are they, what are they pushing against? You know, there's so many questions. And I feel like a lot of that stuff doesn't get considered, especially on social media, where it's just so easy to be like, oh, these kids are doing it wrong. Like they're ruining the culture. Things used to be this way. And now they're this other way. And that sucks. Um, And even if it does, even if it does suck, I want to know why, you know, it's a massive cultural movement. And like, they, people are motivated by forces larger than themselves. And it's like interesting to look at that stuff. Or the opposite argument, which is like, okay, boomer, which is just like, and you've got two people like saying, you know, nothing to each other, basically, nothing of any substance. Yeah. I mean, the flip side of this is like Gen Z, especially, seems to get a real big kick out of pissing off <laughs> millennials and Gen Xers. Like, I think someone who is like a 23 year old DJ playing hard style remixes of Britney Spears or Justin Bieber or whatever in the club, when if they see a comment online from some old drum and bass guy being like, these kids suck, that's like a bonus for them. And so, yeah, it does feel like there's not a lot of 
conversation going on. And the fact that, you know, that a lot of the older people left the club space earlier than they would have, you know, those conversations would have happened more in real life, or at least there would have been, at least they would have been in the same spaces. And now, yeah, it's, it's fine. There was like a void and it got filled by Zoomers and they're kind of like running a bit of muck and tossing the whole scene upside down. Which is just why we need uh, your uh, book and newsletter. I mean, I don't know how many Zoomers are reading it. I mean, some are reading it. I've actually seen a surprising amount of young people at these book launch events, which has been really heartening and uh, to see. Because I definitely don't want to just be only for the Sean Ronaldo, only for the olds. So <laughs> first floor is for everyone. Um, and uh, the book is also subtitled Volume 1. So is that going to be volume two, three, four? Well, I've kind of painted myself into a corner. I mean, First Floor is an ongoing uh, concern. Like I continue writing the newsletter every week and I certainly have more in the archives. I don't know what volume two will be like. Uh, I've done a lot of interviews like and long form interviews with, I mean, even just this year, like Ron Morelli, Matrix Man, uh, I interviewed this woman, Chanel Kadir, who's like one of the biggest PR agents in uh, in electronic music. And I think maybe there's a, a collection of those interviews somewhere down the road, but we'll see. I haven't planned anything yet. So it does sound good, though. It sounds like <laughs> it, see, it makes me sound like there's more coming and that I'm very important. Which it should. Which it should. So, right, tonight, if, if, you're, if you're listening tonight, if you've gotten nice and early, uh, tonight, Tuesday, uh, July the 4th, um, Yibiria, Yibiria, that's a hard word to say, Finestras uh, in Barcelona, moderated by John Talibert. Absolutely lovely bookshop. Really nice, really beautiful place. Thank you. Yes, uh, as soon as I was planning something in Barcelona, I was like, I have to do it at that shop. It's like such an amazing bookstore. Um, July the 5th, Milan? Where is it in Milan? It's at a place called Combo, which I believe is a hotel in Milan, and that one will be moderated by Lorenzo Senni. And um, then you're off to Australia. Um, but any any more, I mean, obviously, newsletter, etc. But any more, anything more we should flag up? Any other things? No. First Floor of the Newsletter comes out every week. You can find it firstfloor.substack.com. It's free to sign up. There is a paid tier if you want to get into all the archives and not ever see a paywall, which I know can be annoying, but uh, there's a free version as well. So yeah, please check it out. Do check it out. Sean, thank you so much. Thank you, Ben. <laughs>